So I'm just uh, coming off of a retreat. I sat for the last week. I, I don't often sit at Spirit Rock anymore. I tend to go to the Forest Refuge to go sit every year for a month or something like that. But I just wanted to unplug and I wanted to get offline and off media and off telephone and off whatever it is that I do, TV, anything. And so I went and sat for a week uh, uh, and there was a, a good retreat happening about the elements, earth, air, fire, water, um, and, and the embodiment of them. Uh, but I was more interested in just sitting and being quiet and sitting, walking, you know, standing, eating, sleeping, urinating, defecating, and that's it, you know, just the basics. And, uh, and just being there in a very simple and full way. And it was, it was great. And I'm starting to talk about this because often after I've done a retreat, I, I do a whole talk on going on retreat. So I want to encourage you all, if, it all, if it's possible, to go on retreat, put a retreat on your calendar, because it's so profound, really, just to learn how to be and be in the moment, because that's all that's happening. It's just a moment of life, and then a moment of life, and a moment of life, and a moment of life. And in daily life, it's very normal to get um, enchanted with the complexity of everything we do. and how much we have to think about it or figure out and manage and, you know, and that's all part of living life and being mindful. But there's something about the wondrous part of letting go of everything and just being here moment by moment. And of course, Spirit Rock's a great place to sit. They have great food. I'm, I'm like thrilled with the food. Every time I go to Spirit Rock, it's so good and, uh, and, uh, and nourishing and made with love. You know, I went to, in at the end to thank the cooks, um, you know, who, you know, that's their job, but they do it with love. And you, 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 you whether you know it or not, you're, you're feeling the love in the food and the, and the, the gift, the generosity, as Nina was pointing at, at the people who are cooking, because they give their hearts to it. And there's something about letting go of thought that was really great for me this time. And I, you know, I know how to be mindful of thought, and it's really great just to watch how the thoughts happen on their own, and we don't have to believe them, or we don't have to buy into them, or we don't have to be cathected to them, we can be aware of them. And then we're just here and life is just happening right where we are. And it, and it just does itself. And there's something that relaxes as we begin to rest in awareness. And so I, and, and my retreat included grieving for my friend, Wes Nisker. And, uh, if you know Wes, as you know, he's a teacher at, 
at Spirit Rock for the same amount of time as me. Actually, we were in the same cohort that Jack Cornfield trained to teach, to become meditation teachers. And this is, this is 30 some years ago. And, uh, and the, the group, this was a very small group. There weren't a lot of teachers back then. Uh, there's a, a lot more now. And um, back then it was um, uh, myself and Guy Armstrong, who many of you know, Spirit Rock teacher, IMS teacher, who wrote a, a really beautiful book on emptiness. Um, also uh, Wes um, and... Um, uh, Deborah Chamberlain Taylor and Tara Brock and uh, Wendy Zarin, who probably most of you don't know, she she hasn't taught that much, but there were just six of us and we would meet regularly and study with Jack as he trained us to teach. And, uh, and that's how I got to know Wes, even though I knew about him because of his radio show. But, but on the retreat, I, he had died and I knew he had died and, and I was grieving him and remember him. And he had, he had, he had had a bad, uh, difficult disease, uh, Lewy body dementia. And, and, uh, he, you know, it's a neurological disease and he'd been diagnosed a few years ago, about four years ago. And then he died on July 31st. And he was living at what was a place called the Elder Ashram, right? Which was an assisted living facility for people who needed help because he needed help at this point. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, he was part of my retreat just because I loved Scoop and, and uh, Wes, his nickname was Scoop, which actually, who did I see? Uh, that it was uh, Abby Hoffman who nicknamed him Scoop. I don't know if that's true, but I read that as I was studying because of something, because he kept, he had some in when the Chicago, uh, uh, seven, the Chicago eight was being um, tried, you know, in 1968, somehow Wes had some, um, he had some way in to get information nobody else had. And so and so they started calling him Scoop Nisker because he was scooping the country because he was a journalist back then. So um, so Scoop was with me on the retreat and uh, my love for him, my appreciation for him and my missing him. And I he had a birthday celebration earlier this year. In, in the in the beginning of the year that I couldn't go to because I was away teaching. And um, I was really sorry I wasn't there. I actually watched a, most of it, not all of it. I'm still going to watch the rest. But it was about a two-hour ceremony at Spirit Rock celebrating his 80th birthday. And so a little background about Scoop. Uh, Wes Nisker. So he was born in Nebraska, right? And his parents were Jewish immigrant parents. And he attended the University of Minnesota, which I know a little about the University of Minnesota, because my daughter attended it, you know, like 50 years later after him. 
and it was a great place, very Midwest, down to earth, good teaching, good place to be. And he got into Buddhism after hearing Alan Watts there. And he arrived in the 60s. He said it was too late to join the beatniks, which he liked the beatniks. He said it was too late to join the uh, beatniks because he was inspired by Jack Kerouac and Gary Snyder. And so he said, I was assigned to the hippies instead. And, uh, and he said recently, he said, to this day, I consider myself a kind of mongrel bohemian, a mongrel bohemian, it's a great term. He's a mongrel bohemian with a beatnik head and a hippie heart. And again, I knew him from the radio as Scoop Nisker. And of course he had these great quotes and great you know witticisms and aphorisms he and his on the radio he always ended his his news show saying if you don't like the news go out and make some of your own and you know that that summed up the 60s to some extent that that era for people and i'm part of that era we thought we could do anything and we could, we were making news, and it was a, it was a new phenomena to have not political events or sports events making news, but people voicing their opinion and their, um, and their uh, contention with government policies, like being anti-war and anti-racism, etc. And that was a big deal. And so Scoop was part of that. And so if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own because then you would be on the news later at night. And I remember being in the 60s in New York and doing radical political street theater. And we would be in demonstrations and, and literally shit would happen. You know, all of a sudden windows would be being broken. Not me, I wasn't a window breaker, but windows would be broken or at a bank or something, whatever we were marching by and you just start to, and then the cops would come and you'd start running and, and then you just turn on the news later and see if you were on the news because it was possible it got filmed. And so I was in the, in the teacher training with Wes and Guy Armstrong, Deborah, Tara, Wendy. And, and that's when I got to know him because he was fun and he was funny and he was deep. And he had this beatnik hippie-ish attitude, but underneath it all, he was totally sincere and totally heartfelt guy. And he, he wasn't just a Buddhist. Like some people in the training were really steeped in Buddhism. That was their life. And that wasn't scoop. And he'd been around the world and involved in the world as a journalist, as a radio commentator. And also I knew his ex-wife and his daughter because I played in a gamelan, a local gamelan, Balinese musical group, gamelan, for many years. Um, and, and from 1985 on, and, uh, and his ex-wife Mudita, who he'd met at, at the University of Minnesota, and his daughter Rose were in the gamelan. And Mudita played music and Rose was danced even as a, a young girl. And um, 
and he and and you know and there was just a lot of love for for scoop and even for mudita ex-wife a lot of love and appreciation she had had a bad accident in asia and he came and took care of her totally and and really really helped her out and of course rose was very happy with her dad you know like you are with any dad up and down but he was a pretty good dad and at the end she said uh rose said that he was really present moving with tremendous difficulty of Lewy body dementia he moved through uh Lewy body dementia with humor with acceptance and with peace and that he had he had affected so many the lives of so many people by helping them laugh at forgive and understand the plight of being human All right and this is what his daughter said at his uh you know after he died and scoop really brought all of himself there he was really who he was you're right he and he did what was helpful and what he knew how to do and kept expanding it and so he became a teacher and people loved his teaching he also co-founded the inquiring mind i hope many of you remember the inquiring mind you can still go on a website and find it and and look at old issues but in the in, when i grew up in the dharma that was the theravada newspaper and you could read about stuff learn about stuff and he liked to do interviews he loved allen ginsburg which i love that he loved allen ginsburg because i loved allen ginsburg and i had met allen ginsburg he had interviewed allen ginsburg so he's very very positive about that and he also was an author and he had many books and i i wrote down a list of the books and the first book which was in 1994 was if you don't like the news go out and make some of your own i've never seen that book but that that was it listed as his first book and then he wrote a book called crazy wisdom because he was into being outside the box including he was in the box but he also wasn't limited to the box of buddhism and and then he wrote a book called buddha's nature who we really are and why this matters and so it was about who who are we truly who are we really and why does it matter to understand that to learn about that and then he wrote a book called buddha's nature a practical guide to discover your place in the cosmos and this is in 2000 when he wrote that one and he was so advanced he was so precocious about the environment and the environmental difficulty that we're dealing with now because he saw that oh we, we are nature he understood that and then he wrote uh he wrote a book called buddha's nature evolution as a practical guide to enlightenment and he wrote a book called the big bang the in the big bang the buddha and the baby boom the spiritual experiments of my generation which was like a a generational uh, biography and then in 2008 he wrote crazy wisdom saves the world again a handbook for spiritual revolution 
And then the last book that I saw was 2016, he said, and this is a great title for all of us, because it begins with a great quote from, from Scoop, where he said, you are not your fault. It's the beginning of the title, you are not your fault. And I hope everybody knows that. You are not your fault. And the name of the book is You Are Not Your Fault in Other Revelations, The Collected Wit and Wisdom of Wes Scoop Nisker. So could we show a picture of Scoop when he was on the radio from the from KSAN? Can we do that, Johnny? There's, there's Scoop, this is pre-Buddhism, right? You know, and he's just this beatnik hippie guy and he's on the radio and he was very radical. Okay, you're, you're going too quick there. <laughs> you could show that second one also, Johnny, that's okay. So this is Scoop again, right at maybe at the beginning of him being a Buddhist. And let's just leave it at those two for now, Johnny, thank you. Um, um, and Scoop was funny. He used humor. He liked humor. It was good. It was good to laugh and it was good not to take ourselves too seriously. And he took things very seriously, but not too seriously. And so as part of his teaching, he developed these kind of uh, comedic routines that he developed that he would use on Buddhist retreats, but also at conferences about psychology. And he had a solo performance that he did at places like the Marsh called Cosmic, Cosmic Wisdom Saves the World Again. And um, yeah, so I'm looking at my notes. I'm just trying to see what I said. He was born in 42 in Nebraska. Okay, and so, so really his Buddhism started in 1971, where he attended his first uh, 10 day retreat in India, in Bodh Gaya with uh, Goenka. And Goenka is a Vipassana teacher who teaches a certain style of uh, Vipassana, very powerful, very, very strong samadhi. And you're just scanning your body over and over and over and over and over again, up and down. I've done his retreats, really powerful. Um, not user-friendly often, can be very difficult. But he attended this first retreat in Bodh Gaya, and he was there with uh, Joseph Goldstein, with Sharon Salzberg, and with Ram Das, who are also attending some of their first retreats at the same time. And so he came back, and he was really a world bridger. He bridged the different worlds, synthesizing or the contrasting components of the Northern California counterculture of beat and hippie and Buddhist and psychology and evolutionary science. He really, all of those were part of who Scoop was and how he taught and not just how he lived his life, who he was. 
and he loved meeting the Dalai Lama. He loved the laugh of the Dalai Lama. He said that's one of the things that, that changed his life. But he also took LSD with Tim Leary. For those of you who remember who Tim Leary is, how many people remember who Tim Leary is? Okay, yeah, that's not bad. Tim Leary was one of the guys who, I think he coined the phrase, turn on, turn on and drop out, right? Because, and he was into, he was a Harvard professor who was, who was experimenting with psychology and LSD and ended up thinking like, oh, this is the way. And, and so, um, um, so, um, Scoop was going to interview him. They were driving from Marin to San Francisco for the interview and, and they took some acid for the interview. Now I would like to see the interview, but I haven't, but, but I, I'm sure it would be an interesting interview if you've ever at all indulged in, uh, the, those old school drugs called psychedelics which some of us have. So, and as I said, he founded the Inquiring Mind with a woman named uh, Barbara Gates. And Barbara said a few beautiful things about him. She said he was a wonderful interviewer and he loved to do interviews as a team with, with her and with other Dharma friends. And his favorite interviewees were Gary Snyder, John Cage, brilliant, brilliant, uh, I don't even know what John Cage was. I think of him as a musician, but I think he was a philosopher. Does anybody know? Something. He was something. An existentialist. John Cage. Uh, Allen Ginsberg, Joanna Macy, Rob Das, oh, you know, to name some. And he loved poetry. And he um, he would select poems in each in, in issue of the inquiring mind in a section they call poems and not poems. And she said, April Fool's Day was his favorite holiday. He was really a playful punster. Can we show the photo of him with his punster hat on, Johnny? Yeah, there's the scoop. And I said to Johnny, I said, he didn't wear this every day. And Johnny said, oh, how do you know? And it's true, <laughs> I don't know. But he loved, like she's, like Barbara Gates said, he loved April Fool's. He loved having fun. He loved playing and being a punster. He said, thank you, Johnny. He said, scoop said, which Jewish writer would you rather have as a Dharma student, Marcel Proust or Franz Kafka? And he answered his own question, of course. He said, oh, without a hesitation, I'd take Kafka. You certainly wouldn't have to explain the first noble truth to him. And furthermore, he already knows that he is part cockroach, something most Buddhists don't understand until after many years of practice. Right. And so you hear Scoop's wit and, and fun and, and not being afraid to say anything. 
And so he spoke, he always spoke with a lot of wisdom, a lot of humor, a lot of wit, and a unique, had a very unique and creative perspective on the mystery of being alive, of human incarnation. And as I said, there was a birthday celebration for him earlier this year in Spirit Rock. And he ended it by singing a song, right, called Buddha Blues, which was a, an original song of his. That was his last public appearance. And one of the things he said, he said, before I became Buddhist, I worried about my life. Before I became Buddhist, I worried about my life. He, but now I worry about my next life. <laughs> and of course, we can all worry about that if we're getting older. And then I'm going to read one more thing from my friend Jack Cornfield, who loved Scoop and was friends with him for 50 years. And uh, he said, and Jack said after Scoop died, he said, when one of your best friends and spiritual brothers dies, it's hard to put into words all that it means. Sad and tender, hard to fathom, and also a loving relief for his release from a deteriorating body. Scoop loved to invite awe of the cosmos. He loved to invite awe of the cosmos. He opened windows into the uh, ecologic mysteries. He smiled at the absurdity of human society and carried a playful, endless, enormous creativity and deep Dharma vision. And here's one of the best things, and this is Jack talking about Scoop. He said, Wes was always kind. And I've heard this all over and over, and I've seen this. He never, he never, said anything mean about somebody else. He could kid with people, but he wouldn't say mean things to them. He wouldn't be derogatory about anybody. And so Jack said, Wes was always kind. And then Jack goes on to say, what a beautiful thing to say of someone's life. And then I'd like to end this talk by reading a poem by Wes called Why I Meditate. Yeah, Why I Meditate. And it's dedicated, it says, Why I Meditate After Allen Ginsberg. And Scoop wrote, I meditate because I suffer. I suffer, therefore I am. I am, therefore I meditate. I meditate because there are so many other things to do. I meditate because when I was younger, it was all the rage. I meditate because Siddhartha Gautama, Bodhidharma, Marco Polo, the British Raj, Carl Jung, Alan Watts, Jack Kerouac, Alfred E. Newman, et al. I meditate because evolution gave me a big brain, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. <laughs> That's a good line. I meditate because I have all the information I need. I meditate because the largest colonies of living beings, the coral reefs, are dying. I'm going to say that again. I meditate because the largest colonies of living beings, the coral reefs, are dying.
I meditate because I want to touch deep time where the history of humanity can be seen as just an evolutionary adjustment period. I meditate because life is too short and so sitting slows it down. I meditate because life is too long and I need an occasional break. I meditate because I want to experience the world as Rumi did or Walt Whitman, or as Mary Oliver does. I meditate now, I meditate because now I know that enlightenment doesn't exist, so I can relax. I meditate because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. And if, if you've, this is now me talking, if you've ever been around the Dalai Lama, it's it's just the the beauty and unheldness of his laugh and tears. They're the same. He's just an open human being. So he said, I meditate because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. I meditate because there are too many advertisements in my head and I'm erasing all but the very best of them. <laughs> Sorry, he's, he makes me laugh, Scoop. I meditate because the physicists say there may be 11 dimensions to reality and I want to get a peek into a few more of them. I meditate because I've discovered that my mind is a great toy and I like to play with it. I meditate because I want to remember that I'm perfectly human. Beautiful. I meditate because my heart is breaking. I meditate, oh, he said, excuse me. Sometimes I meditate because my heart is breaking. Sometimes I meditate so that my heart will break. I meditate because a Vedanta master once told me that in Hindi, my name Niskar means non-doer. I meditate because I'm growing old and want to become more comfortable with emptiness. I meditate because I think Robert Sherman was, Robert Thurman was right to call it an evolutionary sport. And I want to be on the home team. He's got such a beautiful sense of humor. It's good. I meditate because I'm composed of a hundred trillion cells. I'm going to say that again. It's the beginning. I meditate because I'm composed, which we all are, of a hundred trillion cells. And from time to time, I need to reassure them that we're all in this together. I meditate because it's such a relief to spend time ignoring myself. I meditate because my country spends more money on weapons than all other nations in the world combined. If I had more courage, I'd probably immolate myself. I meditate because I want to discover the fifth Brahma Vihara, the divine abode of awe, A-W-E, and then go down in history as a great spiritual adept. I meditate because I'm building myself a bigger and better perspective, and occasionally I need a new window.
So that's the poem from Scoop, Why I Meditate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.